Like a lawyer on Does Joe it Patrice. annoy you every time I do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, Good. I, I, yeah, I'm Joe <laughs> Patrice from Above the Law. I am joined by Catherine Rubino, who you've already heard from. As Delightfully, well. I may add. I don't know as though that adverb was justified. And also, <laughs> uh, Chris Williams is here. Hi. Here at Thinking Like a Lawyer, this is your weekly roundup of the big stories in the legal industry. The week that was. Provided by those of us here at Above the Law. Uh, yeah, so without any further ado, we usually begin the show, rather than jump directly into a topic, we have this kind of awkward situation where we- Small talk. We, we, we have a little bit you, of small Joe. talk. I mean, me and Catherine, we seem to be rocking it. Oh, and that's the beginning of small talk. <laughs> those of us who are adept at personal interactions find it delightful, actually, Joe. Yeah. Speaking okay. of, how was your how was your week, Catherine? Uh, pretty good. We had the first real snowfall of the year yesterday up where I am at. So it was just enough. It's pretty on the trees, but the roads are now completely clear. So you can still go about your day-to-day life. You can just, you know, look at the pretty snow. Factoring in Moby Dick. So snow is what happens when it's cold in the air. <laughs> no, so I have a I have a story. So when I went to um God forbid, St. Louis for law school. Um, the thing about WashU is it's one of those schools where you get people from everywhere in the U.S., despite it really being a, a feeder school for law firms in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And one of my uh, best friends, I consider him to be a, um, a brother now, also a pain, but they're related. Um, <laughs> he grew up in California, and I was like, oh, shit, you're going to be able to see snow. And he's like, no, I don't believe in it. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, snow isn't a thing. So then it snowed finally, and I took him outside, and I was like, look at it. Look. And he's like, nah. <laughs> no, this is fake. <laughs> so whenever We're I all living of, in a simulation, and yeah. this is part of it. So yeah, whenever, I think of, uh, whenever I think of snow, I think of uh, uh, Californians in denial. <laughs> well, it is real, and uh, if you don't know how to drive in it, I would stay home. Yeah. That would be my advice. <laughs> I think that's uh, that that's fairly sound advice, even though we do not provide legal advice. We are not. That's not legal advice. That is stay alive. advice. I mean, it could be. I mean, they're all related. Anyway, the point is, yeah, so that's great and exciting. What Uh, did you do this weekend, Chris? I stayed in my room for, I think, the entire weekend. Wow. Um, I know that you know people talk about good investments like, oh, 401k, uh, Bitcoin, then anything but Bitcoin. One (laughs) investment. I highly recommend light blocking curtains because mm. there was a point where I I woke up. I thought it was 8.42 a.m. Monday. Turned out it was 8.42 p.m. Sunday. So oh. I feel like that $20 investment gained me 12 hours. And, <laughs> you know, for bang for buck, you can't buy time, but you can definitely buy the perception that you have more time. And that's well, you definitely can- worth 20 you can definitely buy time to the extent that that's how the billable hour is function within our industry. So the way that small uh, talk works is you don't do <laughs> anything. Uh, <laughs> Joe's hey. over it without sharing a lick about himself. No, no. Which he does every time. <laughs> well, well, since you know, small talk is over because he ended it, I guess we can't yeah, talk about that anymore. I mean, I, I didn't end it. 
it, that's that's just how the system works. I don't control when you absolutely control. And ends. You and, hit the button. And, we can all see you. It is bigger and than kids, all of us. And kids, this is Marbury v. Madison. You know, if <laughs> I just told him to send the mail, then I couldn't. You know, I'm a I'm a court guy. It's <laughs> it, it's bigger than all of us. Anyway. <laughs> But the transition uh, will force the issue. So, uh, billable hours, let's talk about that. So, what we learned this last week is there is a law firm in North Dakota that is suing and has has successfully, won, yeah. successfully sued, although the, there are appeals they're waiting on the North Dakota Supreme Court, I believe, to finally rule on this, but has sued two of its former associates, asking them to pay the firm for not billing enough. This is some shady-ass shit. There is certainly that interpretation. Uh, the way in which this functions is there is a... Well, and I, we're not necessarily going to get into all the legal back and forth, the factual uh, disputes that they have. Let's just focus for now on the language. Uh, there is a employment agreement that the associates were forced to sign... Well, were asked to sign <laughs> as a condition of having their job. Right? Forced to sign forced, a little yeah. bit more, but yeah. And but the, it was not at the start of their employment, right? It, it was, was not. It was at in in March of 2020. Hmm. Uh, I wonder what was happening then. That I mean, that's that date certainly sounds a little ominous. Uh, but in March of 2020, they signed an employment agreement. One of the provisions of this agreement was that there is a billable hours expectation, and if the associates don't meet that minimum. Rather than that just being, oh, they don't meet that minimum, they don't get a bonus, or they don't meet that minimum and they're subject to being fired. Uh, what it said was they don't meet that minimum, and that would then be charged as a debt to the firm, and the associates will need to come up with that money to pay the firm back. Since it is not an associate's responsibility to get the work to which they can then bill to, this seems like some massive horse hockey right about here. Well, certainly that... that that is one of the big arguments that the associates make, that at the, at the end of the day, uh, when they aren't the ones who are eligible to bring in the work and it has to be assigned to them by a partner, this sets up something of a win-win for partners, especially during a pandemic lockdown. The courts were closed. Because, yeah, you could, you could as an, a partner, bring on all the associates you want. Uh, if you have work, assign it to them and you make the money off of it. And if they don't have, if you don't have work, you don't assign it to them and then you charge them for the right to have been your employee. It seems to be how it could work. Not that necessarily that's how this firm was running it, but certainly that is what this language would set up. I'm not sure how connected this is structurally, but hearing that, that immediately reminds me of there's a situation where some for-profit prisons would have uh, contracts with the cities that they're in that mm -hmm. stipulate that if there aren't a sufficient amount of prisoners, that the city owes them money. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it creates an incentive for there to be more policing. It's the states, yeah, and you know, this certainly happened to Mississippi, who had a shortfall of convicts, and therefore the the for profit prison company charged the state more money. Uh, the of course the state had argued for hiring a for profit prison company to save money by not running the prisons themselves, and ultimately 
in that accounting for how they were saving money, they at no point considered what if we have to pay a bunch of these penalties penalties that are triggered when we don't have enough people. Here's the thing. Capitalism doesn't lose, right? Yeah, so you I mean, have to figure that in when you're trying to assess these contracts. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, the but back to the billable hours situation. Uh, this is the language of an agreement that got signed. So there's on, that on one side. There is the fact that this was dropped on people at the beginning of a very terrifying lockdown, which raises some questions about adhesion and so on. Uh, Big ones, I would think. There's some factual argumentation on the part of the associates that they were receiving bonuses throughout this period that they weren't making hours, which they feel somewhat ratified the idea that they weren't in trouble uh, for not having those hours. There's some allegations of people leaving at, at times without, you know, and, and so on. All of that can be sorted out by the courts. I just feel like in a vacuum, we should worry a lot about this sort of language. Because if this sort of language starts taking hold, it becomes very Dickensian very quickly. Yeah, you sold your soul to the company store. That's the line I use in my bit for folks who are familiar with 16 tons. Uh, it's great little, great little ditty. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah. I mean, this is really problematic. I think you're right if this spreads throughout the legal industry. And I would say right now, if you are considering any sort of a lateral move or post-law school uh, position, if this is a line in your contract and you have any other offers, take those. And if you don't have any other offers, then don't work in the legal profession until you find one mm. that doesn't have this language in it because you are putting yourself in a position where you've potentially increased your debt because you will be working in a situation where if things go wrong, they are going to go after you because of their own failures in bringing in business. Uh, it's a uh, really horrifying. I, when, one of the saddest parts of this, this story is that I've heard since the story came out from others not in the legal industry saying that this practice has started cropping up in other industries. In particular, I got a tip about teachers in a state who were being hired by school districts with clauses like this, uh, with you know, because teachers can be hired, but they don't necessarily know where where in the district they're teaching and what grade and so on. And they were putting out they're putting in contracts, stuff like, yo, you're going to be hired by us. But then if we don't end up using you, you're going to owe us a bunch of money back, even though you've forewent all other employment opportunities based on this promise. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's real bad. Uh, and it's the sort of thing that, you know, I, I can't I don't really rely on state legislatures to act in the public interest very often. Uh, but this would be a good opportunity for them to do that. Yeah. Were, were contracts like this? more common prior to the advent of at-will employment? Because this fact pattern sounds familiar to, like, early contracts that I've, I've read from, like, 1900 or so. I remember there was yeah. this one. Yeah, so, like, how, how do what, what, what implications does this trend have for the gig economy and uh, at-will employment, well, right. do you think? Well, right. I mean, we are entering the, uh, you know, yeehaw, we're on a, when, when we're on express train to the Lochner era again. It, this is real terrifying. And I think you're right about the gig economy situation. There, we could easily see it come up there where people have no power to do things. I, this is very akin to that 16 tons analogy. This is very akin to the old coal mining contracts where you get paid, but the only way to get 
supplies and food for your family is to pay the company back, uh, which means that it's a closed economy that the company always wins. It's real problematic. Listen, this is the season where people start watching A Christmas Carol, uh, the Muppet <laughs> versions back on Disney Plus with oh, the okay. extended songs. So I would highly recommend that. But the point is... There are not a bunch of ghosts that are going to visit all of these contract writers, right? So we have to do our part and talk about them and not sign them and tell people that they exist. Uh, so, you know, let's not go back. Yeah. Also, what's 16 tons? Do you, you not know that song? Mm. It's a classic, classic song. Does it have an author or like a singer? It does. Tennessee Ernie Ford, yeah. I believe, is yeah, the, I think the name. How, how yeah. would I not know that? Damn old Tennessee. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I am. It, it does. It is a song that is Listen, somewhat. 16 tons. The, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Yeah. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Yes. These are all lyrics from that. My mom and, used to sing that to me as like a lullaby as a child. I mean, that's terrifying. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, we, need to have, um, we need to have a subset thinking like a parent episode. I'm like, why did you do that? <laughs> or, or some real psychotherapy for Catherine over here. So, all right. Um, Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Okay, so we are back and chatting about other topics. What do we want to talk about next? Well, the end of democracy is nigh. Well, it seemed like it could be. Uh, I'm uh, wait, the end of democracy is new? Yeah. Uh, well, the actual end. Yeah. So we um, the, the we, nail in the coffin, as they say, is is at least being threatened in the Moore case that was recently argued sure. in front of the Supreme Court. So the so, yeah, so the Supreme Court heard an oral argument in Moore v. Harper last week. Uh, this certainly seemed as though it was the precipice of the end of recognizable democracy in the country. Uh, the provision was an opportunity directly aimed and cultivated for the purpose of getting the right wing of the Supreme Court who have, you know, right wing fed sock circles have been dancing around this independent state legislature theory for a while. Uh, in a nutshell, what this theory proposes is that when the Constitution says that 
quote, legislatures are responsible for setting the rules for having elections in this country, as well as for selecting the electors to the Electoral College, that that means, according to this theory, that the legislature, as in the state house and state senate, themselves do that, as opposed to the legislature vis-a-vis its role within state government, Uh, meaning that if there are checks and balances on the state legislature, like state courts or the governor, uh, according to this, even if the state constitution requires those checks, when the U.S. Constitution just says legislatures set these rules, it actually means just the legislature unmoored from any checks and balances. Uh, This is a highly technical if completely absurd reading of the text. Uh, With that said, that is the argument that uh, is being pursued. Why would this argument be pursued, one might ask? Why, Joe? To benefit minorities. Yeah. Um, That that train is always late. Uh, The one that is not late, however, is that the... It'd be by virtue of a lot of different things, uh, factors in this country. State legislatures are routinely Republican-dominated, even in states that are not Republican-dominated. In fact, you have states like Wisconsin, with where all but one statewide official is a Democrat, and that's been how every statewide election has turned out, for, with the exception of a couple, for a long time, and yet the Republicans have a near supermajority in both houses of the Congress and have for like two dec- two or three decades. Uh, that sort of unbalance is not unheard of, especially in a world where partisan gerrymandering is still constitutionally legal uh, by, the, by the way our Supreme Court has decided those cases. And given that, you end up with a situation where if you said that the state legislature had no one to answer to in deciding how federal elections happen, you basically turn that all over. Mm. Up to and including, you would have a situation where Wisconsin would just say, Donald Trump won our state, regardless of what the actual actual voters did. Uh, There are some people who say, well, it may not even go that far. There are some other state laws that would cabin that, but who would check that? Uh, This theory would suggest that no one would. Uh, And given all that, it seemed very dangerous, but it also seemed wildly absurd and one thought hey maybe maybe even conservative justices would pump the brakes on this and as it turns out based on oral argument which is not a pure predictor it seems like that might well have happened Uh, and and you know you take that optimistic approach i know some other folks do as well but i am not nearly satisfied with that and won't be until we actually get the decision i still think that there's no reason for conservatives on the court to necessarily lay out exactly what they're going to say or what their arguments or what they're going to write when it comes time for the decision. And it has certainly been true that based on oral arguments, people have been wrong about what the ultimate decision would be based on what they felt as a result of oral arguments. So that is not at all guaranteed. And I'm still very nervous about it, particularly because of the sort of uh, fervor that this theory has gotten in the far right circles since then. I mean, I think that's certainly true. Look, look, the tea leaves that you want to read on this are that Thomas and Alito both seem to be getting, and Gorsuch, the three of them seem to be getting increasingly frustrated as the oral argument went on at the fact that Kavanaugh, Barrett, and the chief did not seem to be buying what the 
folks were were pitching here. They were asking questions that really leaned towards maybe the, you know, the Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas set were crazy, uh, given that those questions, and they were also that median group uh, relatively on this question, was also responding more positively to the questions being asked by, mostly by Justice Jackson and Justice Kagan. Uh, Justice Sotomayor was also involved, although it seemed like it seemed like she had been more involved in the in the case the day before. I think they might have div- divvied up who was gonna <laughs> embarrass people on each case. Uh, well, you know, you got to divide the prep work here. Yeah, uh, with Justice Jackson asking what I thought was the most damning question. This was mm. what my article was all about. She just kept saying, "But if state legislatures only exist because of state constitutions, how can that legislature be above that constitution <laughs> that created uh, them?" Which uh, it is a chicken and the egg or a problem, except it's, as I put in the piece, it's more like which came first, the chicken or my dinner tonight. Uh, there is a correct <laughs> answer and a very clear answer as which come, came first. But yeah, it also featured among the people arguing the case uh, was Hogan Lovell's Neil Katyal, who uh, obviously has been a guest on this program in the past. He... You know, like Judge Ludig, retired Judge Ludig uh, was mm. there and he actually tweeted out that he thought it was the best oral argument he'd ever heard at the Supreme Court. I got to say it's pretty uh, compelling. Pretty I got to say stuff. it was ridiculously compelling. Uh, very just like he came in. He came in hot. He came uh, in hot. He came in, as I recall, specific arguments for Justice Thomas um, based on a s- previous decision in Smiley. And uh, not just and not just yeah. specific arguments, calling them out. Yeah, like, like Thomas like, asked a question. He's like, you know what? I've been, I've waiting. been waiting for this question <laughs> from you. <laughs> yeah, I have an answer. And if you don't if you don't write this in your decision, you are you are turning yourself. You are saying the opposite yeah. of what you've said previously. He, he had he had legitimate receipts of Thomas saying, well, the law obviously means this. And it's like, well, unless you were lying before, then your answer is this. I mean, it was real. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a great moment to yeah. listen to that, you know, legal nerds enjoyed for sure. Do I think that that is actually going to change what Thomas eventually does in this case? I do not. I, I do I, not. I don't. Uh, but I do think moments like that, I think, have an impact on the Barretts and Kavanaugh's of the world. I think perhaps. That, I think that I think the chief has been pretty like the chief's been on. Listen, he's terrified about where this court that bears his name is headed. Right. Well, in the in the Arizona the case from several years ago uh, when Kennedy was still on the court about Arizona creating by ballot measure an independent commission to mm-hmm. do it, the chief in arguing against that case really took the stance that legislature does mean legislature, but it means government. Uh, he was like, it, it can't be a ballot measure, but it still is kind of like the, the real government structure. So he doesn't necessarily want to go this full direction of legislatures are unmoored from the courts. So I think that's kind of the direction he wants to go. He wants this to stop at, you can't have a ballot measure. So I think he's he was probably trying to tease people over, and this probably successfully did that. Hopefully. We'll see. Um, yeah, no, it'll be it'll be interesting, but yeah, it was it was it's a real scary if it were to yeah I, I, if the maximalist position were to happen. This looks like the end of democracy, doesn't it? Yeah. As an aside, one of the uh, known critiquers of democracy in philosophical circles, Plato, turns out that probably wasn't his actual name. Oh, really? We, really? We got a new name on Plato? No, but Plato would meant broad shoulders was probably his nickname. 
Oh, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, so for all we know, his name was like Stephen or some shit, whatever the Greek equivalent of Stephen was. <laughs> uh, so as you're listening to the, the outline of this, just know that Stephen probably predicted this back when he wasn't wrestling other people because Plato was also a wrestler, which is why he got the name uh, uh. Plato. It would be like if it would be like if 2,000 years from now, we um we like, yeah, this great philosopher called The Rock said X, Y, Z. Yeah, okay. Yes. I mean, I, I, I thought for a second uh, it was going to be his, his real name was Silly Puticus or something like that. But <laughs> no, that was his didn't. cousin. Okay, that is interesting. So you know who's a big proponent of the independent state legislature theory? Oh, that's an interesting question. Is it, is it Clarence Thomas? Oh, his wife. His it, wife, actually. Well, Okay. Yeah. Uh, is actually part part of the whole January sixth uh, and big lie about the twenty twenty election was that she came out advocating that folks take that position. But this becomes relevant because uh, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, um, Congress has added the judicial security and privacy provision to it. You know that sounds great in theory, and there are certainly good reasons to uh, protect the judiciary and their family. There have been horrible attacks on members of the judiciary and their family as a result of their work, which is horrifying and absolutely something we need to do something about. However, this current provision includes a lot of information. It shields a lot of information, not just of folks, members of the federal judiciary, but as well as their family members or any person who is living in their house. Uh, and that includes things that you should that should be protected, right? We should not know their social security numbers, their bank account numbers, license plates. Okay, great, that all makes sense. But it also includes information like who they work for. Uh oh. Yeah, that seems to really put a dark cloud over judicial transparency, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems like if you were interested in ethics on any level, mm. uh, knowing that the spouse of a Supreme Court justice was getting say hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars from shadowy lobbying groups with mm. interesting cases before the court would be important to know. Yeah, it seems like you might want to do that. However, if this passes, which again, as part of the defense uh, act is likely to pass, uh, it would actually effectively become a state secret. Yay. <laughs> yeah. So it's up there with, you know, data from spy satellites is what, uh, how much money Jenny Thomas gets from litigants with interests before the court. Mm -hmm. And listen, we already know that the court is not, the Supreme Court in particular, is not great about transparency issues. We have written stories about on disclosure documents. Numerous judges have misidentified how much money their spouses are getting from different sources or not given us full information about who they work for or who, they're, who they get their money from. And it's just kind of, normal, I think, and a basic matter of transparency to say that the public deserves to know who, what financial interest that judge's household has in, the, in any given matter that's potentially before the court. I should note that there is a provision that excludes the, uh, those who are engaged in reporting and news gathering from these sorts of, from the non-disclosure arrangements in this. However, a lot of these investigations that become big Wall Street Journal investigates kind of stories actually start with like the Free Law Project, which mm -hmm. just did a bunch of FOIA requests and posted this publicly available, it's now publicly available, judicial disclosure information. And, you know, there's, there's very much a reciprocal, you know, relationship between information that's publicly available and what journalists cover right. and the way that they're able to cover it. And I think that, you know, it's, 
it's definitely chilling about what kinds of judicial transparency stories the media is able to cover going forward. Yeah, it, it you know it, it it's an interesting dovetail to a, the story we talked about last week, which where the or or maybe it was the week before uh, they're all bleeding together, but with about the Supreme Court trying to kind of play this idea that reporters are have magic superpowers to make sure everything's they transparent. If they clean. only want the information, it's theirs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, and in that case, it was that they determined that because Politico couldn't verify for sure that Alito had leaked the, hob the Hobby Lobby decision, then I guess we have to assume that he did. Must not be true. Uh, which, that's the whole problem. Like, it, journalists perform an important task in this world, but they are at the mercy of what's what's available to them. Uh, the idea, by narrowing what is available to the public, uh, which this law does, you're creating more situations where those journalists are not going to be in a position to report on it, no matter how much lip service you want to give them for their role mm -hmm. in defending the yeah, I mean, transparency. Listen, a, they can't do it. A giant point. part of reporting is understanding publicly available information. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely the door under which lots of stories get created and shutting such a massive one that has tremendous impacts about understanding what influence is currently being exerted over the federal judiciary is incredibly troubling. Yeah, even if there's exemptions for them to go after the stuff on the back end, the inspiration for the story in the first place exactly. is often driven by something being public. Anyway. Right, and somebody like Ginny Thomas, who is very is now, I think, certainly in Washingtonian legal circles, very well known for her morass of potential conflicts. Certainly someone like her is, you know, always going to be talked about, has a potential to be investigated. But who's the spouse of uh, justice in 10 years, 15 years mm -hmm. after these laws have already been passed and have kind of been cemented into our expectation as a public? I don't know that we find out who the next Ginny Thomas is if this becomes the law. Yeah. My mind immediately went, John Cena. Bah, 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 bah. No. Okay. What? What was it's that? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, the younger folks will get it. It's okay. I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure they could. <laughs> did, did you get it? I did not. I, I couldn't, I couldn't even understand I, what that was. I, I repeat, whole, younger folks will get oh, it. Oh, no, it had nothing to do with the younger folks of, or what the song was. I just, maybe I needed to turn on auto-tuning to get that to sound <laughs> a little bit more like them. Mm. Small talk. Yeah. So anyway, uh, with that said, thanks for everybody for listening. You should subscribe to the show so you get new episodes when they come out. You should give reviews, stars, write something. It always helps. We've been hearing from more of you uh, writing us little messages uh, through the email system and all, and it's it's been heartening. Thanks, everybody, for Thank you. Say, saying nice things. Definitely put those in reviews, too, uh, just for the algorithm's benefit. Uh, you should be reading Above the Law so you can see these stories and more before they are discussed here. You should be following us on social media. The blog is at ATL blog. Uh, on Twitter, you, I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One, which is that numeral one at the end. Chris is at Rights for Rent. You should be listening to our other shows. Catherine's the host of The Jabot. I'm a guest on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable. You should be listening to the other offerings of the Legal Talk Network. And with all of that, then I think we're done. Remember, if you have nice things to say, say them. Peace.
If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.